that. So, um, but in the sermon, at least we'll be working through a little bit more in detail. Um, I was sitting at uh, breakfast this morning with Peter, uh, my five-year-old son, if you don't know. And so we're sitting at breakfast this morning and uh, I just, you know, we're just chatting. And so I told him like, hey, I get to preach this morning, you know, like Pastor Kenny always does. I get to do that this morning. And he was like, oh, are you going to preach about dinosaurs? <laughs> and uh, so I was like, no, I kind of been flipping through my notes, seeing where I could like insert a dinosaur illustration. Um, but I figured just to keep the integrity of the chapter, uh, doesn't work. So we'll just, I'll talk to him about dinosaurs later, I guess. Um, but we are not talking about dinosaurs this morning, although it did happen a long time ago, I guess. Um, but again, uh, of course, the scripture reading was John chapter 11, or at least some portions of it. Um, and I do want to note, as we're kind of diving into this, there are a lot of really important and significant conversations that happen in this. Uh, we will talk about Mary and Martha a little bit, kind of a glance over just because there's a lot of details there, but you could even look at some of the conversations he has with his disciples, the statement of Thomas, of course, and there's a lot of different things that happen in this chapter, um, and I kind of put it this way, you could easily take two or three sermons um, just to cover John chapter 11, um, and I say that again, to point that this morning we're really trying to focus in on Lazarus and sort of the main points and details that lead us to Jesus' miraculous raising him back to life. I do recognize that, of course, this is a pretty familiar story, um, or I should say a, a familiar biblical event. Uh, and we often, I think, maybe because of that film familiarity, lose a little bit of sight of just how significant that this specific mi uh, miracle was during the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you study Scripture, and even if you just study the Gospel of John, categorically, um, this miracle is in a group of just a handful of miracles that actually held really important um, or, or unique importance or unique significance during Jesus' life and ministry. I mentioned first it is significant because of when it was done. Uh, and you look at kind of the placing of even this sermon uh, in relation to Resurrection Sunday, and if you study the, I say, the timeline of Jesus' ministry, the raising of Lazarus actually occurred less than three weeks from the cross. So uh, I didn't even, we didn't really actually do that on purpose. I realized in studying when we decided on this about a month ago, I was like, oh, that works perfect because it's about two or three weeks from Resurrection Sunday and we're like two or three weeks from Resurrection Sunday. So we didn't do it on purpose. Maybe I shouldn't have said that because you just thought it was smart, but uh, it was sort of accidental, but I think it, it's important to recognize, um, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but the timing of it actually makes it very unique in the context of what it ignited kind of within the area surrounding Jerusalem. We'll get, get to that kind of uh, as we get closer. But second, I also want to mention, of course, it's significant because of how it was done. Now, as, as you look at Jesus' ministry and the miracles he did, every miracle that he did, of course, held significance because it was this confirmation, not just of the message that he taught, but of course, of his true divinity, that he was God in the flesh, come down from heaven to live a sinless life, give his life on the cross, and then to come back from the grave. That's who he was at what he, it's, it's, you know, it's what he came to do. And I mentioned that because it's important to recognize that Jesus, of course, was not just a prophet, as some religions, even as, as like Islam teaches. Uh, he wasn't just a prophet, and he wasn't just a good moral teacher or the founder of Christianity, as many other religions, including atheism, hold to. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. And if you say, oh, but he never claimed to be God, just read John chapter 10, and you'll understand the context of John chapter 11. And in fact, they tried to arrest and kill him in John chapter 10 because he said, I am God. So he did claim to be God, and he was God. And again, you look at Philippians 
2 as well, and that's uh, another critical passage there. But I also kind of tie this in that there are other accounts of Jesus raising people back to life. So if you study kind of that four-year window, there was resurrections that occurred. So there are some that are just referenced, and there's a few that are kind of given in more detail, kind of like the, the widow's son and Nain. And then, of course, you have Jairus' daughter as well. Um, but what's significant about this specific resurrection? Because there, are other, there were other resurrections uh, as far as the ministry that he did. And then how does the resurrection of Lazarus lead us to the cross, lead us to Jesus' resurrection, and basically leading us to the whole reason that we celebrate Easter in the first place? I want to note this just in some reading. I found a Jewish historian that basically noted that this this event, the resurrection of Lazarus, was actually the first domino that fell, which would eventually lead to the, the crucifixion of Jesus. The religious leaders of that time already knew Jesus claimed to be God, his claim to be the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Again, I just tell you to read John chapter 10. And they already hated him, and they already desired to arrest and kill him. Of course, they had tried a few times and failed because it wasn't God's timing. Now, looking at that reality, though, in the four years of Jesus' ministry, um, of course, these plans never went through. But as you look at John 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus, it essentially started the process which led to the selfish and bitter betrayal of Judas, the rigged trials before the Sanhedrin, the manipulation of the crowd by planted leaders, and even the soldier-guarded tomb after Jesus' burial. And I think it's fascinating when you look at John 11 and, and Lazarus, what you find is almost this, I don't know if you ever heard like the butterfly effect. It's like this small little occurrence that, that just sort of leads into this like bigger complex story. And I actually think Lazarus, you do sort of see this like butterfly effect that in this one small occurrence providentially influenced a much larger story that needed to unfold. Now, similar to the Mount of Transfiguration, remember on the Mount with some of the disciples, it's sort of this private removing of the curtain of Jesus' true glory. He, he showed some of his disciples his true glory. He pulled back the curtain and sort of this private context. But I want you to recognize that in a very similar way, the raising of Lazarus after four days in the grave was actually a much more public removing of the curtain to reveal the truly divine magnificence and glory of Jesus Christ before his his own resurrection. And so I am excited to look at this together this morning just to see how his response um, and even the response to Lazarus's um, resurrection basically points us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was going to begin unfolding. Uh, so just kind of looking at this as far as an outline, if you're a note taker, um, it's the preparation, the arrival, the miracle, and the results is just how we're going to break it down um, as we kind of move forward. But looking back at John chapter 11, uh, in verses 1 through 16, this is basically the preparation for the miracle to happen. I know we read verses 1 through 3, and it just basically gives this very simple outline of recognizing, as far as the events occur, um, that Lazarus is sick. Now, the way that this plays out, I want you to understand that it is seemingly very sudden, or at the very least, his illness takes a very sudden turn. So something is going on, whether he wasn't feeling well, or all of a sudden he was sick, and they're like, oh, no, this is really bad. We need to... 
we need to let Jesus know. Um, and so a messenger is sent to Jesus. Now, if you read the previous chapters leading into John chapter 11, we actually know that Jesus is in like the Transjordan area in Bethabara, which is like 15 or 20 miles away. And just to put that into context for us, you're like, oh, 15, 20 miles to just hop in the car. It's like 10 minutes or whatever. Um, but recognize that 15, 20 miles was like a, a full day travel for them. So a messenger is sent. They find out where he is. This messenger is sent. He travels for a whole day and obviously communicates this message. Now, I know that often we think of Lazarus as sort of this key character in Scripture, which obviously he is because of this miracle. Um, But it's funny that he's actually only mentioned in John 11 and then only briefly in John 12 in one or two verses. And I do point out that there is no indication of his age that's given. But as you look at information about Mary and Martha, Lazarus is most likely their younger brother. And some scholars note that he actually could have been much younger, um, even in his early 20s or even possible like an older teenager. Uh, And there's different things that tie into that. But looking at it again, I just mentioned that as we kind of transition to verses 4 to 15, because really you start to find that the passing of Lazarus was not only sudden um, in this form of illness, but it kind of helps paint the picture of just how tragic and sudden this loss of life was for his sisters and for his family and friends. As you look at verses 4 through 6, what we find in these verses, uh, as we read during the scripture reading, um, is the early sort of glimmer of hope despite this painful reality of sin and death. Uh, So this transition point of recognizing uh, the illness and Jesus choosing to stay, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But as we kind of look at that, it's funny, uh, one commentator, John Gill, talking about this early section of um, just early section of the chapter, he said, what man saw as a tragedy, Christ saw as an opportunity to demonstrate both his love and divinity to his followers, but also to his enemies. So yes, upon finding out Lazarus was dying, and this is sometimes Critics, for whatever selfish reason, criticize Jesus saying, oh, he heard he was sick and then he just hung around for two days. I do want to point out that if you look at the time frame, uh, Lazarus most likely died the day that Jesus got the message. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we even get to that, I want you to understand why he waited. Because sometimes we like to jump to conclusions. We read something and our brain immediately thinks, oh, I kind of understand But the question is, he waited, but why did he wait? And understand that John 11 does clarify. So look at verses 5, 6, and 7. I know I read them, but it's important to read them again. Um, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. If you study the Greek, there's actually a connection between that sentence and the next sentence. So you really could say he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And because he loved them, verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And then after that, he says to his disciples, let's go to Judea. So I just want to clarify, because he loved them, he waited. And I know it's a simple point, but it's an important one to never forget that it is far better for us to wait patiently on God's timing instead of forcing our own timetable. We ought to say and pray with the psalmist from Psalm 27, 13, and 14, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord." Now, this is the sentiment that's really echoed again as Jesus says, um, kind of his, back to his disciples in verses 14 and 15. So look at 14 and 15. 
Uh, he tells them we're going to go. Remember, they, they kind of warn him saying, remember, you know, remember John chapter 10? Uh, <laughs> it's, remember what just happened? We're in Judea. They tried to arrest and kill you. Are you sure you want to go back? And so he says, we're going to go back. And they think he's talking about sleeping, but he says, no, he's actually dead. So this is where we get to 14 and the conversation with the disciples. Jesus says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And then, of course, verse 16, you have uh, Thomas's sort of pessimistic, pessimistic statement, but it actually is a statement of faith. So we'll, I say, commend him on that, at least a little pessimistic, but it was confident, uh, at least in willing to die with Christ. Um, but I, again, we kind of looking at the scenario, we read verses 14, 15, and recognize that Lazarus has passed away. And I know that most of us, unfortunately, have have experience this and understand this, that sin and death are ugly things. But looking at this as we move towards this resurrection of Lazarus, it's important to remember like 1 John 4, 4 reminds us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Yes, death and sin may be some of apparently Satan's greatest allies. But when you study passages like Job's chap- Job chapter 1 and 2, you actually find that all of them must kneel before the sovereignty and providential work of God. That's an important truth to kind of hold on to as we lead into um, the arrival, which is kind of our next point, the arrival, verses 17 through 37. Now, we're going to highlight verse 17 real quick because we need to talk about why this four-day time period is so significant. So just look at verse 17. It says, then when Jesus came, so he shows up after a day of travel to the town of Bethany, he found that he, that Lazarus, had lain in the grave four days already. Now, if you look also at verse 39, uh, it's highlighted again by Martha that Lazarus has been dead. He's been in the grave for four days. So it's important to note this because it actually addresses what was a superstition that was held in this society. So I know sometimes we look at like superstition things. We know it's goofy and it is goofy, um, but I always kind of laugh. You know, it's like, what's one of them? If you see a black cat, it's like bad luck or something. And it's not, but every time you see a black cat, you're like, ha, <laughs> you know, it's like, we, we're not superstitious, but we have like that weird edge in our brain sometimes. Or I don't know if you like, you work sometimes and there's a ladder, like you're not supposed to walk under a ladder. And you know, walking under the ladder isn't bad luck, but for some reason you always go around it. You know, it's just this weird mental thing, I guess. Um, now I use that really just to kind of illustrate this idea that these people did have sort of this, I say superstition, But it basically was this belief that when someone died, their soul would hover like around their body for at least three days or like, or I should say a maximum of three days. So for one, two or three days after somebody died, their soul would hover. This isn't true. I'm just making sure it's like superstition. Okay. So they would believe, they believe that their whole, the the soul would like hover around the body. But at like when it hit day four, the soul was gone. Like there was no hope of resuscitation. So that's, that was sort of this just like spiritualized idea that a lot of people believed. Now I mentioned that one because, and you, if you look at the the other resurrections of Christ, they were pretty much immediately after death. So you look at the widow's son in Nain, uh, where it's uh, in Jewish culture, they married, or they buried the day that someone died. So just to illustrate that, if you study Acts 7 and 8, when Stephen is martyred, 
it says at the very beginning of 8 that as soon as he was done being stoned, after he was martyred, they buried him immediately. Uh, obviously, you see it in Jesus as well on the cross. They, they bury him immediately. But again, I'm just illustrating this point that when someone died, they bury them the day that they died. Now, why is that significant in this four-day time period? Well, remember, Bethany is... Beth is 15, 20 miles. It's a one-day journey from where Jesus was. So you have a messenger traveling from Bethany to Bethabara to pass on the message of Lazarus is sick and something's really wrong. But understand, as we show up at Bethany, we recognize Lazarus has been dead for four days, which means the day that Jesus got the message, Lazarus was already dead. So there's some of this coldness that sometimes we selfishly apply and we start critiquing, but you understand his waiting was in his timing for a reason, but the reality is Lazarus had died likely before he ever even got the message. And then, of course, you have the two days of waiting, so now you're at three days, and then you have Jesus um, traveling from Bethabara to Bethany, which is your fourth day where he shows up to Bethany. So that timeline is very important. And even looking at this idea of a soul hovering, even though we recognize it isn't accurate, um, it was a way of addressing sort of uh, these people's superstition in a way that they couldn't deny it. Um, And you'll have to forgive me for quoting uh, Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, um, but they literally believed in like mostly dead and all dead. They're like, well, for three days, they're mostly dead, which is slightly alive. And then all dead is fourth day is it's all dead. So um, just tied that in because that was for you, Joe. Um, (laughs) uh, But they did. That's kind of how they thought. For three days, you're mostly dead. And then after the fourth day, you are all completely dead. Now, again, I say all joking aside, but recognize that that four day is significant because in these past resurrections, they would have used that superstition to say, ah, oh, he, didn't, he didn't raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. She, had been, she just died, so her soul, she just resuscitated. They would have looked at the widow's son in nine and said, oh, yeah, but she, he just passed away. Even the Pharisees had this idea that only God could resurrect somebody after three or four days. Like, that's the way they thought. So recognize the four days isn't just four days. Four days was a way of confronting even his greatest enemies and deniers that he just did something that even they believed only God could do. So it's important to kind of look at that in that context and understand the waiting. We go back to waiting on God's timing is important and it's significant in our lives, but of course it applies here as well. Now, transitioning a little bit now to verses 19 to 32, upon Jesus' arrival to Bethany, we find two critical conversations with Mary and Martha. Now, this is found in verses 19 to 32, um, and these conversations, and I actually, I know I mentioned this before, but these conversations in and of themselves in a sense, require like their own sermon to like dive into the depth of everything that goes on in a really positive way. Um, But I just say that being said, it is critical to at least overview these women's responses to Jesus' arrival and what it actually teaches us about the hope that we have in Christ, even in grief. Obviously, it applies here and it applies during the resurrection. But of course, there's practical connections to the way that we live now. And of course, when we experience grief in our own lives, But both Mary and Martha, kind of in their own ways, but in important ways, actually demonstrate the proper response to loss, grief, and even pain in our lives. 
So if you look at verse 21, and of course, uh, that, this is the first conversation with Martha. Martha shows up, verse 21, and Martha says unto Jesus, Lord, uh, if, thou, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. And then if you look at verse um, 32, Mary says the exact same thing. She comes and falls worshiping at Jesus' feet, and she says almost basically verbatim the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Now, they both say that, but again, I say this, we have to be careful not to hastily assume that these women are emotionally accusing Jesus of not helping or of not being there in time. Because actually, if you dig and you study a little bit, you find that's not what's happening here at all. In fact, when you see Mary shows up, her first response to Jesus actually is to fall at his feet and worship, seeking his presence. She hears he's coming, and what does she do? She gets up and she runs to him, and she falls at his feet and worship. Now, Mary's conver- or Martha's conversation, so Mary kind of demonstrates it, but then Martha, if you study her conversation, we're going to look at right now, her conversation with Jesus following that statement actually proves that it was not a statement of anger and doubt, but actually a statement of faith about what Jesus could do or even what he was capable of doing because of who they knew and believed that he was. So looking at 22 to 27, this is Martha communicating her faith and confidence in God and showing how it's not like a, you know, a dichotomy. It's not a contrast to what she says in verse 21, but actually supports. It's, it's like proof that the conversation and what she says initially was faith and confidence, not an emotional accusation. So just look at verse 22. So 21, Martha says, if you'd been here, our brother hadn't died. But then what does she say immediately after that? But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. What she's saying is, I know that even though this seems dark and hard, I know that you can do something good out of this. That's, she has this statement of faith that I know if you were here, you would have been able to heal him. But I know that even right now, you can still do something good in this scenario. And then actually look at verse 24. This conversation continues. So Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, of course, Jesus 25 and 26, again, she's, she's not, she doesn't know what he's about to do. And, but again, also note her eternal perspective. Oh, Jesus, I know, I know he's okay. I know he's taken care of. It is an eternal perspective, but Jesus, of course, getting into this 25 and 26, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He's pointing him back to her, but verse 24 shows you that her vision is still looking eternally. She's still confident in God and what he's capable of doing. And then you look at verse 27, and she, Martha, says to Jesus, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world, or the the Son of God, which was promised, the one that was promised to come. So again, looking at that, this Martha is communicating. She has this conversation with Jesus, which again proves that her statement initially was not, well, you should have been here. It was, if you were here, I know you could have healed him, but I know that you can still do something good in this. So Martha communicates in her way, but then what does Mary do? Mary demonstrates Mary runs to Jesus when she finds out he's on his way. She falls at his feet, worshiping him and bowing him. And I want to point out, this is the exact same posture that she takes in John chapter 12 when she falls at his feet, anoints him with the oil and washes his feet with her hair. It's the same position of worship and honor for recognizing him for who he is. She says, if you had been here, I know you could have saved him. And she falls at his feet and worships him. 
So Martha communicates her faith. Mary demonstrates her faith. And I want you to understand that these are the women who just tragically lost their son, and they are grieving, and they are in pain. We're not saying they're not grieving and they're not in pain. We're saying that that grief was something that turned them to Christ, and it was not an excuse to question, doubt, or blame him. These women provide a powerful and, frankly, a very convicting response to the loss and grief that they were experiencing. In fact, I would actually go so far as to say that they are the perfect picture of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that we do not grieve as people who don't have hope. Now, although neither of these women knew what was about to happen, they had no idea that he was, they were about to have a conversation with their brother again. Um, They had no idea, and thinking that they'd lost their brother forever, note that they both respond humbly to God's presence, and they both stand firm in their faith by praising and worshiping him, not questioning him or using, and again, I just say their words and their actions prove that to be true. Now, in addition to that, we actually tie in Jesus' response as well, because Mary and Martha are grieving, but we also tie in these other people that are there weeping and grieving over Lazarus. Scripture does indicate in different portions of the four gospel accounts that um, this family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus's family, was actually a very well-known, even possibly just a very influential family. And so we look at that and just see that there are many people there. There's a ton of people here. Some of them are the professional mourners that was part of Jewish culture, but also there's family and friends that are just seeking to be there for Mary and Martha. And again, in the midst of all of that, you cannot ignore the weeping and the groaning of Jesus, the grieving of Jesus as well. Isaiah 53 prophesied that Christ would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, uh, this certainly rings true here, but not necessarily for the reasons that we think initially. To be clear, Jesus did love these people, and obviously he loved Lazarus. But he showed up knowing that he'd be seeing and speaking with Lazarus again. So he's not necessarily grieving over Lazarus specifically because he knows I'm about to have a conversation with him. But why is he weeping? Why is he groaning? Why is he troubled deeply in his spirit? Verse 33 says that Jesus groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And verse 35, despite being the shortest verse in the Bible, The Greek word there actually communicates an immense amount of emotion. Actually, in verse 35, Jesus wept. That Greek word has the connotation of actually a um, like a silent but really deep weeping. So he's not like wailing around like a lot of these other people were. It's a quiet, personal, but very deep, hard crying. First, Jesus is not weeping and wailing, as I said, like others either because it was their job or because they were weeping hopelessly. And again, I also know that we, all, we don't see that in Mary and Martha either. But secondly, the Greek word, of course, communicates that deep sobbing. But what about the root words of it saying he groaned and he was troubled, describing Jesus' response? Um, that Greek word, and it's important to recognize, again, that's, you talk about this, this study Because those words, every time they're used, those words actually indicate indignation, like righteous anger. So he is weeping over the the sorrow and the grief that he sees in people he cares. But in his groaning and in his troubling, in the troubling of his spirit, there's, there's a righteous anger in this grief. 
Now, looking at this, a lot of people have sadly illustrated Jesus as losing it in grief here. But if you just do, I say, a very shallow level of study, like in a good way, but just dig a little bit, you actually find that Jesus is weeping at the pain, one, that he sees in the people that he loves, what death has done to the people that he cares about. He sees the sobbing and the weeping and the grieving of Mary and Martha and obviously of others. But again, going to this indignation, recognizing that he is also troubled and groaning. He is righteously indignant at those who were using this tragedy to grieve selfishly, to grieve hopelessly, and actually um, even at those in the crowd that he knew were using the grief and pain of others in order to question, doubt, and reject him. Look at verse 37, because this is really important to understand. Like, wow, why is he indignant? Why is he angry? Look at verse 37. It says that some of them, people in this crowd said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? People are looking at the, the genuine sorrow and grief and pain of people and using it to doubt and question and reject God. That's where this indignation is coming from, from this selfish grief and this, or it's just the selfish kind of connection. And then obviously not even thinking about the people in pain, but using it for their own position or whatever. So as we look at Jesus, we look at Mary and Martha, we actually learn something very important and also very practical about grief. Because I do say this, yes, grief is real, and we are going to face it in our lives, and we have to be able to deal with it. We have, you know, we need to wrestle through it. But I also want to mention, as we see here, even our grief has to be done from a posture of worship, not as an excuse to give control over to anything but Christ, or as an excuse to blame and question or doubt God. I just want to reference back to 1 Thessalonians 4 that grieving as someone who does have hope in Christ means clinging to him and our grief, but also not using grief as an excuse um, to, to either you know, milk pity out of people selfishly or to do these other things that sometimes our flesh wants us to do. Grieving with hope means clinging to Christ. And we need to be weary of wallowing in grief or just allowing our flesh to drive us towards um, using something selfishly that we're actually going through. And so the connecting point really is to cling to Christ even as something as deep and, and sometimes as hard as grief, to cling to him, to worship him, and remember that the hope that he alone gives in the face of even something as difficult as grief, that we are always clinging to him in even grief, which is a real thing we have to work through. But again, clinging to him and worshiping him like you see Mary and Martha doing, um, even when we're going through something as difficult as that. Now, this actually takes us now to the tomb of Lazarus and to the climax of the event. So uh, I know that I've pretty much ruined this part, so you kind of know what happens. <laughs> uh, but this is the miracle, and it's important, and it's, I say, short. But again, it's just, it's, it's exciting to see, and then kind of the transition of what it means and what it meant. So looking at verse 38 of chapter 11, it says, Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. And it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Now that verse, uh, and, or the word, the groaning in verse 38 is the same one as verse 33. So again, you tie this in, he shows up to the grave. It's the site, like this symbol of death. And there's this indignation again towards the, the pain and the death uh, of, of death and sin that's caused. Of course, uh, in a lot of ways, people mention this, seeing the 
the grave and uh, being Christ, being there at creation and the fall, almost remembering the fall and remembering how this all came about because of Adam and Eve. And he has almost this flashback of this is not the creation. When I created it, it was perfect and sin is tainted. So you see this. He sees the grave and this indignation rises in him again, righteous indignation just at the side of the tomb. But again, Christ also provides, as we say, the only answer to the grave, right? The first thing he tells Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the gospel, that it will bruise his heel, the Redeemer's heel, but the Redeemer, the Redeemer will crush the serpent's head. And you have this reality of pain and death and grief, and yet Christ shows up and there is hope. We see in verse 40, Jesus' statement to Martha, where she says, he, you know, he stinketh. He's been in there for four days. And he says, it's okay, remove the stone, basically. Uh, so as they do that, Jesus' statement to Martha, and they're basically, again, as we mentioned before, like the Mount Transf- of Transfiguration, they're about to see Jesus' true glory, divinity, uh, and, and really the true power of his death over, or his power over death and sin, which, of course, only God has. So then you look at verses 41 and 42, which we read, uh, and they remove the stone. Jesus prays basically as a means of preparing the hearts of those who were present, who would believe after seeing God's power on display. Verse 33, Jesus calls out to Lazarus. It's important. Uh, I know a lot of people have noted this sort of like tongue-in-cheek way, um, but this is likely like a family tomb. So there's multiple people in there, and he may have called out Lazarus uh, by name just in case, you know, everybody walks out. Um, But he calls him out by name uh, and because he's likely in this family tomb. And of course, verse 44, Lazarus walks out of the tomb alive. And just like at the transfiguration, Christ's glory is on display before everyone And everyone now, remember this four-day superstition thing, has confronted the reality of who he is, his power over death, and they have no no way to question, doubt, or, or use it in a selfish way to defend their position, as some were already doing. After being in the tomb for four days, Jesus had just done something that even the Pharisees believed only God could do. So, what was the response? Now, If you look at verse 45, I'm actually going to read verses 45 to 53. So we stopped at the resurrection, but I want you to understand that Scripture does clarify the response to this incredible event. And we're going to start in verse 45 and actually read all the way to verse 53. So 44, Jesus calls out, and or I'm sorry, 43, he calls out, Lazarus walks out, 44, loose him and let him go. Verse 45, then many of the Jews, which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also uh, that he also he, he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. 
Now, some did believe, and actually we'll know this as well for many, including the disciples, this literal physical resurrection of Lazarus actually became a catalyst for helping them believe after Jesus' own death and resurrection. So you look at this event, and then obviously the disciples struggle after the resurrection, and this, including some other things, were a big part of them actually getting to the point where they were like, oh, he is alive, of course he meets them and all that good stuff. But this event was a catalyst for many people even after Jesus' resurrection of coming to faith in him. However, we can't ignore the response of many. Many just simply hardened their hearts, allowing this miracle to start the dominoes falling over the next two or three weeks, which would ultimately lead to Judas's betrayal, Jesus' arrest, the rigged Jewish trials, the unjust Roman trials, and then, of course, the crucifying of a sinless, guiltless Jesus Christ. Now, although in the end of this chapter, we do see, uh, again, you look at Caiaphas, who is the high priest. I mean, he holds a high position in you know, the religious system in Jerusalem. And you see this guy using this position of you know, religious leadership basically to blaspheme Jesus Christ. And again, obviously, he's responsible for the evil intent of his words. But what Scripture and God clarifies is he didn't even know that his words were actually, in a sense, used by God to give a prophecy about what Jesus, to to declare the plan of salvation that Jesus was there in the first place. So I kind of put it this way. We actually start to see the glory of God himself and actually the sovereignty and the providential work of Jesus throughout all of human history, including in the hearts of of, of, of those who are bitterly rejecting him. So yes, we see God's clear hand working through Caiaphas, the high priest. Although Caiaphas thinks that he's executing his power and seeking to condemn a righteous man that threatened his power and his position, what we actually find is Proverbs 21 verse 1 coming true, right? That the, the heart of the king is in, the hand, and is in God's hand, that God turns it wherever, so, wherever he wills, and that's what we find in Caiaphas. Actually, this is a quote from John MacArthur speaking on this passage. He said that while Caiaphas uttered blasphemy against Christ, God parodied his statement into truth. The responsibility for the wicked meaning of his words belonged to Caiaphas, but God's providence directed the choice of words so as to express the heart of God's glorious plan of salvation and actually tying him to prophets like Isaiah, Malachi, and so many others. Caiaphas was actually used by God in John 11 as a prophet because he was the high priest, and originally the high priest was a means of God's will being revealed. So I just point this out because it's important that even when you see the darkness and the evil intent of man's heart, you see God, God's sovereignty and God's power showing through even in the resurrection of Lazarus. We cannot lose sight of what this miracle was meant uh, to prepare the hearts of the disciples and others for. The completely sufficient redemptive work of Christ on the cross and in his self-authorized literal physical resurrection after the crucifixion. So we see that in Caiaphas, but I also want you to see um, God's clear purpose in resurrecting Lazarus by actually the response that many people had to Lazarus himself after his resurrection. So I want you, you may not even have to turn. I know for me, it's just the page over. But if you look at John chapter 11, or John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, 
we find that they actually were seeking to kill Lazarus because of what his new life represented. So this is within, remember, we're like two or three weeks from uh, like the Passion Week or from the crucifixion. So in this window, uh, John chapter 12, starting in verse 9, it says, Much of the people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, that Jesus was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom had raised, uh, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. They knew, again, going back to what they knew, the resurrection of Lazarus proved that Jesus was God. He did something that only God can do. So that clearly proving who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, and obviously they didn't like it very much. This miracle was a means of blatantly confronting people with Jesus' eternal sovereign divinity as God himself. It was a means of exposing their arrogant and ignorant rejection of God himself, despite claiming to be following him and obeying him. And sadly, they are actually proving the story of the rich man and the beggar true from Luke 16, which Luke 16 there's, is the only other time a Lazarus is mentioned. It's just a different Lazarus. But you know, Lazarus and the rich man, right? And there's this story, um, probably even a true story that Jesus was telling, um, but they're proving the conclusion of that story correct. So remember, you have this unnamed rich man having rejected God is in hell. And in hell, he cries out and he asks Abraham to do something in order to keep his friends and family out of hell as well. And what does Abraham respond back? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. To clarify, they have God's word. They have scripture. Let them hear them, uh, basically saying they have what they need to know Christ and to not uh, have to pay for their sin. And then the rich man says back, no, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they reject scripture, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And you look at Lazarus and you find that proving point. And you look at the response to Jesus' resurrection and it's a proving point. We, sometimes we get so caught up in thinking that we have to have, and I, I'm, I know we should be prepared. I'm not saying, you know, the, the first Peter 3.15 or what we, even what we're going through in apologetics with the teens. We should be ready. We should be prepared. But recognizing that it is God that does the work in people's hearts. It's scripture. It's the truth of God's word that digs at people's hearts. That's what we're sharing. We're trying to declare the glory of God through scripture. These people rejected Jesus and they hated Lazarus because of what his life represented about Jesus. As we kind of close out, we have to ask ourselves, does my life reflect the glory and the power of God? Does my life honor him? Does it please him? Does it worship him? Or like Judas and many of the Pharisees, does my life of faith reflect a selfish or fraudulent pursuit of religion without reverence at God's feet, like Mary. One of the reasons that, you know, we look at all of these things uh, in, in Scripture, we look at kind of the world's approval of even a Christian as a reason that we, we really should have red flags. But I just want to point back to this, that without the cross, without the empty tomb, there is no hope. There is no lasting comfort in this life. And there certainly isn't for eternity either without Christ. So as we prepare and move closer to Easter and move closer to Resurrection Sunday, it's important to ask and to answer this question for yourself. 
Why is Easter or why is the death and resurrection of Christ so important? Why is that supposed to be at the forefront of our lives? Why should I be concerned if my life is declaring myself or if it's declaring the gospel of Christ? I actually found this quote recently in a book I'm reading called Heralds of God. Um, It's just a, a preaching book, but it was written by James S. Stewart. And I just note the context of this. Um, this book was published in 1946, right after World War II. So I know World War II is ni- 1945, but he actually wrote and published this book right after World War II. And it's important because of what he says. This is what he said. Preach the cross in the context of the world's suffering. And men will learn that God in his sovereign love still leads captivity captive still transforms the wrecking circumstances of life into means of grace, the dark places into a holy of holies, and the thorns that pierce into a crown of glory. For the cross, the gospel means that even when things are at their worst, even when life does not bear thinking about, God is master of the situation still, and nothing can spoil his final pattern or defeat his purpose of love. That is the message of hope that this world needs. It is the message of hope that our lives ought to represent as clearly as someone being brought back to life. I understand you study scripture, you know, the New Testament, and as in many ways as believers, we are given a quote-unquote new life in Christ. But my question is, are you using it for the gospel or are you wasting it on yourself? Our shallow Christian culture too often thinks and acts as if we need something more profound than the gospel, something more relevant or appealing than the cross, or something more trendy or artistic than an empty tomb. And looking at John 11 and Lazarus, we find that our response is actually very simple. What could be more relevant than a risen Savior? What could be more comforting and invigorating than a loving, personal God? What on earth could be more profound than the death and physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I just say this, what could be more profound than the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And even just the songs this morning and and prayer and just remembering who you are and what you've done. We're so grateful for scripture. We're so grateful that you've given us what we need to know you, to know your love, to know your care, but also to remember in the dark times of our life that you are sovereign, you are in control, Lord. And because of who you are, because of what you've done, that control and that sovereignty gives us peace no matter what our lives look like. I pray that you would challenge each of us, myself, Lord included, um, to be moved, Lord, to love you, to serve you, and to not get deceived selfishly, to deceived even as Kenny has been preaching through First and Second Peter, Lord, that we wouldn't be deceived into thinking that life is anything, is about anything but you. Drive us to our knees before you, before your throne. Help us to worship you even in grief and other loss and pain like Mary and Martha. Father, help our lives to represent clearly your power, your glory over death and sin, your victory that you've won like it did in the life of Lazarus. Help us to to raise and walk in a newness of life that honors you and glorifies you.